Thank you, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. Wait, Bill Bradley, Basketball Hall of Famer, former Senator, 2000 presidential hopeful, starting our interview with an impersonation of the old entertainer, Jimmy Durante? That was Jimmy Durante. That's right. That's right. And I'm Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. I didn't know a Durante impersonation was in the uh, toolbox. That's the story of love. I didn't know that part either. Give a little, take a little. Long ago, Bill Bradley was comfortable on the basketball court and in his role as U.S. Senator from New Jersey. Now he's comfortable on stage as well, as the creator of a one-man show all about his life. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Bill Bradley spent many years in the public eye, as a standout college basketball player at Princeton, a member of the New York Knicks championship teams of the early 1970s, and as a U.S. Senator. But there were before the cheering started years, as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford as the NBA awaited in the mid-60s, his first season with the Knicks when he heard not cheers but boos, the lead-up to a political career after his retirement from basketball, and growing up in Crystal City, Missouri, not far from St. Louis. All chapters that Bradley has revisited for his one-man show. Well, I think that the key thing was, uh, first of all, um, having access to all the stories. So I began by taking yellow pad and writing hundreds of stories down, right? And then you began to shape it and you began to refine it. And you try something out, you try something else, and ultimately it evolves to the emotional tone that you want, as well as fitting into an overall narrative arc. Is that uh, sometimes easier said than done in terms of going back and looking at things in your life? And is, is it a feeling of, oh, I, I, I'm enjoying this, I want to do this, or are there moments of, do I really want to take a look at, at this particular part of my life? Uh, I, I had the time of my life doing it. I did it for four years. Um, during the COVID, and then I began honing it down, and then I performed it on my own, memorizing it for about six months. And um, I loved it. Every night before I would go out to do the show, I would think, this is exactly what I want to do. Exactly what I want to do. I'm saying exactly what I want to say. And whatever resonance that has with people, great. As an interviewer, we always try to uh, get our interviewees to talk about aspects of their life or, or the stories, but have them look at it in a way that maybe they have not looked at it before so that perhaps we don't get the answers or get, you know, what, what other interviewers have gotten. So I'm curious, as someone who is preparing your one man show, did you look at some of the stories that you've told uh, several times or often because they're compelling stories. And did you look at them in any kind of different way or try to dig in deeper to see if there's something more you could get out of the story of you practicing uh, in the Oxford gym uh, after not really playing much basketball for a year and a half or the stories of 
your early years in the NBA or any of them that have been told a few times? Did you try and go into those a little bit deeper to see if there was more there? No, I was I, I was basically doing what I had done over the years, which is being aware of my life and aware of what I was feeling at the moment in that life. And uh, that then comes out as a story from time to time. And if it's a good story, it was a good story five years ago, 10 years ago, it's a good story now. Hmm. The question was selecting the stories that would make the points that you wanted to make. Were there things that you came up with, especially let's start with going back with uh, growing up in Missouri. There are things that in doing kind of this research of yourself, for want of a better term, like things that you came up with that you actually hadn't thought about in quite some time. Uh, yeah, I would say that. I would say my relationship with uh, Alec, who was uh, the custodian at my father's bank, that was something I hadn't thought about as intensely as, intensely as I did in the show uh, for a while. That's an example. The um, story of Coach Pope, um, the high school coach who didn't think I was tough because I didn't play football. I hadn't thought of that in years, but it popped out when I was trying to say, well, what's the truth of this period of my life? And then the story of my aunt, Boob, and her husband, Uncle Cecil, who I lived with every winter for four years in high school. They, um, they, they also um, were very powerful things in my life, people. I suppose the thing that uh, came out that was the most surprising was how much I remembered what my grandmother said. Never look down on people you don't understand. And, you know, I, I internalized that, but recalling her in the context of the mints that she had and, you know, and the relationship I had with her was an interesting aspect of the show. Is that advice that you knew even as a young man? Well, I'm, I think there's something there. This is pretty important. Or is that something that only kind of comes to you upon reflection that uh, this is this advice from my grandmother is, uh, is, is a learning, is a lesson learned, even if I didn't realize it was a lesson learned at the time? Uh, no, I always felt that. But what I didn't realize was it's the width of its applicability. I mean, it applies to anyone you interact with. It's not simply a racial comment or an ethnic comment or a religious comment or whatever, but it's uh, basically <coughs> how you conduct yourself in your life. Um, and you know, I was taught never look down on anybody, right? But this is certainly never look down on people you don't understand. And today I see frequently people who are looking down on other people. They don't understand. They don't understand. And uh, in no frame of reference. I mean, and therefore they make judgments that are, I think, false and dangerous. As you're uh, growing up in Missouri and you start to play ball and you're playing ball in high school, uh, is there so, any notion of 
there's something else I want to do other than, you know, obviously be a good student and be a very good basketball player? Was there another passion? Was there a plan B in case basketball or something else did not work out? When I was in high school, I wanted to be the best basketball player I could be. And that was defined always in terms of team championships. And therefore, it was winning the state championship. That was the goal. In college, it was winning the NCAA title. In the pros, it was winning the NBA title. So when I was in high school, I wasn't thinking about college or pro. I was thinking about high school and winning the state championship. Now, we lost in the finals by a point, but... uh, you know, that, that's the way it goes. And I didn't win a championship in college. And it wasn't until I was with the Knicks that I won my first championship in 1970. Uh, but all along, it was not a matter of, uh, well, I really want to be a pro player. And I never thought about that. I modeled some of my moves off of pros like Elgin Baylor or Bob Pettit or Jerry West or various people. But uh, Oscar Robertson. But I, I didn't uh, consider myself as a pro. In terms of what was outside of basketball, um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a diplomat. And that's why I wanted, that's why I ended up going to Princeton because of the Woodrow Wilson School. And that's a school that essentially trains diplomats. The whole study is you doing notes like you would do if you were in the State Department. But I blew up my first year academically and I couldn't get into Woodrow Wilson School. So I, I did history instead. And in retrospect, that was a great gift because it's a much broader exposure to life. History is much broader than simply writing a memo on economic development in Sudan. Hmm. Uh, and, um, but I was never someone who said, gee, I'd like to be a president or a senator. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to serve, but I didn't know quite how until toward the end of my playing days, it became obvious that I would do that as a politician. So, so when you uh, switched over to history at Princeton, uh, was that a, a pretty seamless transition for you? Or was there some notion or was there some doubt in terms of, oh, I, I, did, I came here to do this, but that's not quite working out. Huh, no. I mean, when you don't have a choice, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, if they said, look, you can go to Woodrow Wilson School, I probably would have. But they said, well, you don't have the grades to get in. So I went to history instead and had a wonderful experience. I wrote my senior thesis, which is a big thing at Princeton. You know, it's a 120-page paper on Harry Truman's re-election to the Senate in 1940 in Missouri. And so I could never have done that and had the context for that. Then I wrote a junior paper on the Red Scare of 1919, which is, you know, a kind of xenophobic period in America that we had before and that we have today in some ways. Um, and so it gave me a wider experience. And then it wasn't simply a matter of, you know, what were the facts, what happened when, but they occur in a culture. So what was the imaginative literature that shaped people during a particular period of time? And to me, all of those things came together 
in history, in the study of history. It wasn't just battles and presidents. It was novelists and poets and and uh, whatever was happening in the culture at that time. That was the history. Where does the love of that come from? Can you point to something at home growing up in Missouri? Like, okay, this is tangibly where I I, I was taught that this this is important, or is it a little bit more intangible than that? Well, I know as a young kid, I was always extremely curious. I'd sit in the basement and read old National Geographic magazines and dream of faraway places, right? Or I'd listen to Edward R. Murrow's record, I Can Hear It Now, about the voices of the Depression in World War II, um, you know, FDR and, uh, and Winston Churchill. And, uh, you know, I was always somebody who was interested in the broader context of people's lives. And I didn't really get to imaginative literature until I was at Oxford. I didn't really do much of that at Princeton. I did a course in drama that was extremely moving. I remember crying when I came out of Death of a Salesman, uh, the lecture on Death of a Salesman. Uh, but um, it, it was a matter of every, every time there was something new. One was the history, then it was the literature, then it was the poetry, then it was the movies, then it was, you know, Different aspects of life uh, lent themselves to me in a richer and richer format. And in the context of that, I was also performing. I mean, I was a basketball player for sure, but I had my radio show. I had a radio show then, and I have a radio show now. I mean, I've had a radio show on Sirius XM for almost 18 years called American Voices, mm-hmm. which I interview people who have unusual jobs or who do something selfless in their community. Well, back then, I worked for KMOX Radio in St. Louis, and I was a stringer, CBS stringer in Europe when I was over there. And I remember interviewing Lord Harlick, who was a boyhood friend of Jack Kennedy, on the third anniversary of his assassination. Remember interviewing Mary Quant, the uh, originator of the miniskirt, a designer, I remember one raucous evening with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor at some pub outside Oxford, all interviewing them, you know. And well, it was it was learning and performing at the same time. I think for those of us who know your career and know it pretty well and have watched it and read about it and spoken to you, you as journalists is a chapter that we don't know that much about. Uh, yeah. I guess that's true. The, did the love come close to you pursuing it? Uh, now, I know you said you've had a radio show, I was but... thinking about what I was going to do. Yeah. That was one of the possibilities. Yeah, being a journalist. Did it shape your view of uh, journalism, sports journalism, political journalism, as you were going through your career as a basketball player and then as a public official? No. When I decided I didn't want to do it, I moved on. I wasn't trying to do... You know, my reaction on journalists depends on who the journalist is. Right. right. I mean, it doesn't matter. They're not, there's not one journalist that everybody's the same. Everybody's different. Some of them are enormously curious. A guy like Robert Lipsight, mm-hmm. who wrote for the Times, was a great intellect and curious and he saw things, right? And then there were the guys that traveled with the team 
who wanted their stories and they got their stories and they were great. They were good writers and they had insight. And then there were the writers that were given special assignments to cover me. A lot of my friends come out of the journalists that I met uh, early on, like uh, Jeremy Larner, who did an article about me for Life magazine, went on and won an Oscar for writing The Candidate with Robert Redford. And I remember thinking through when he was with him when he was McCarthy's speechwriter back in 1968. And then, of course, there's John McPhee, who uh, wrote the article in The New Yorker, became a lifelong friend and the godfather of my daughter. So, you know, journalism, they're people. They're not, uh, it's not a category. Right. It's like uh, a tradition, right? Sorry? It's like politicians. All politicians aren't the same. Everybody is different. You have a different feeling and you are moved by different things. Well, anytime you get into all blank are blank, then you're in trouble. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, regarding... Except one thing, all, all tall people are discriminated against in this world. That is the truth. Yeah, and you saw that up close and personal. Yeah, particularly yeah. when I had to fly transcontinental in a coach seat in the middle. <laughs> when I, when these I went, these I, are the big issues of our time, Senator. I went to the Olympics in 1964, our flight from Seattle to Tokyo with one stop in Anchorage. I was in the middle seat between Lucius Jackson, who was 6'9", <laughs> and Mel Counts, who was seven feet. So you can, that was a, you know, that was a moment when I thought, you know, I don't think these things were made for tall people. <laughs> By the time Bill Bradley was excelling at Princeton in the 1960s, he was already the subject of public fascination, most notably in an article in the New Yorker magazine and then a much-praised book by his fellow Princeton alum John McPhee, A Sense of Where You Are. Did you go back and read those types of things to kind of see, again, how people were looking at you at that time in your life? A little, not much. Um... If I, if I read, I was not looking to see how people were looking at me. I was looking, did I have an anecdote that I told then that I forgot? Mm-hmm. It was in the, in the guise of research, not in the guise of, uh, you know, gee, maybe this enlighten me about who I am. You go back and find something and say, hey, this Bradley guy is a pretty interesting guy. Yeah. It's like when I was injured with the Knicks and I'd sit on a bench for a game or two. And I'd be sitting there in my street clothes, but I'd be on the bench. So I'd look out and see these six, nine, 240 pound people running down the floor like a gazelle and slamming into each other. And I'd say to myself, I play, I do that. (laughs) Who knew? Uh, Before you got to Princeton, I mean, we have this sense now of uh, great high school basketball players and they're already known as they go off to college. Did you have a sense about yourself that you were already, for want of a better term, a public person? Yes, I did. Uh, that was uh, early in my high school. You know, when people start looking at you and pointing their fingers, you know that you're a public person. And um, when there are articles in newspapers about you, you know, you're a public person. And uh, I realized that probably by my junior year in high school, where 
the attention from the press, as well as the attention from the recruiters from all these universities, told me that, you know, they saw something in me that uh, they were drawn to. What is that like? Because for 99.999% of us, we can make our mistakes in private. We can uh, make a decision that doesn't get uh, uh, analyzed by people who don't know us. And so is there a way that you can prepare for that? Or is it strictly jump in the pool and learn how to swim? Well, I remember a wise man once told me that uh, these articles in newspapers or what people think of you, it's just opinion. And there's a lot more in life than opinion. And it has to do with who you are as a human being, what you value, what you do every day, how you honor your values. And so to me, um, I, uh, I think about that a lot. Did the decision to go to Oxford, which is well known, again, by people who uh, have followed your career and respected, was it an easy one for you? Was it a, pardon the expression, was it a slam dunk? Or did you really uh, have concern about, uh, is this the right move or not? No, I was absolutely convinced that's what I wanted to do. Because if you go back, you know, um, a little history, you know, I had about 75 basketball scholarship offers from places around the country, Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, Kansas, as well as others, and um, Princeton, Yale. And uh, my secretly, my mother, not so secretly, my mother wanted Duke. So in May of my senior year, I chose Duke. And uh, then my father, who was always working indirectly, said, you know, you want to take a trip to Europe. So I took a trip to Europe that summer between my senior year and freshman year in college. And there were 13 women on the tour and me. And we went to a variety of places, but I remember one day we came to Oxford and I walked into Christchurch Cathedral, Christchurch College. And I thought, when I looked around at the quad and the grass and history, I got to get back here someday. Came back from the trip, broke my ankle, started reading books about Oxford, read about something called a Rhodes Scholarship. And at that time, in that book, it said that Princeton had more Rhodes Scholars than any other university. So it was five days before the Duke freshman class was to convene. And I came home from a date, woke my parents up, said, I want to go to Princeton, not Duke. And part of the reason that I and so my father called an alumnus in St. Louis. And I was on a plane on Sunday. And Monday morning, I was in the Princeton freshman class. The basketball coach didn't even know I was there. I ran into him two days later. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I changed my mind. But that was partly related to the experience at Oxford. That for some reason, there was a calculation that if I went to Princeton, I'd have a better chance to go to Oxford. And so it wasn't simply a decision at the end of my senior year to go to Oxford, but it was a decision I took at the end of my senior year in high school to try to get to Oxford. And, and Princeton was a means to get to Oxford. Senator, there's an expression in sports journalism that the more interesting story is quite often in 
the losing locker room. The emotions are more raw, especially maybe during the playoffs. The emotions are more raw. The the answers are more honest and less cliche ridden. I found that generally to be the case. Um, but I also found through interviews that uh, some of the more compelling moments are when talking to people about when things did not work out so great. And you are, of course, a part of perhaps the most beloved team in New York City sports history, the Knicks of the late 60s and early 70s and the two championships. Is there something about that first year when things were not going so well for you in the NBA that you learned about yourself while going through it or that you learned about yourself looking back on it? Yeah, well, no, I mean, failure hurts. That's what I realized. Uh, I had not experienced it as intensely as I did my first year when I was playing guard. I was too slow. And the crowd, which had cheered me every shot I took in my warm-ups in my first game in Madison Square Garden, a month later switched and started booing and spitting on me and throwing coins at me and costing me, and it's true, Bradley overpaid bum. And it really hurt. And so what do you do in that circumstance? Well, you don't deny the hurt. You feel it. And then you say, well, okay, what do I do? And you go back to the things that shaped you as a child. And that means you go back and work hard. So the summer between that first year and second year, I worked very hard on my game. Played in Harlem, played in Philadelphia, played anywhere I could get a game. And uh, then when I came back my second year, I was improved, but I was still not a guard. I was too slow. And then Cassie Russell broke his ankle. They moved me forward, familiar position. Team gelled. The rest is history. But there was always luck there. There was luck. I mean, I've, I've been lucky in many respects. I was lucky when Cassie Russell broke his ankle and the coach moved me to forward, which is a familiar position. I was lucky in politics when my primary opponent or when the Republican Republican senator was defeated in the primary by a young conservative. And as soon as that happened, I thought, well, I could beat him. I didn't know if I could beat the Republican incumbent. But that defeat was, was luck. So in both those cases, luck played a role. But you had to be ready to take advantage of the luck when it came. Are the feelings, going back to that, that first year of uh, struggle in the NBA, do those feelings have a, an effect on you when things turn out to be much better a few years later in basketball? And does that thought or that memory play any role in you having to contend with the, the whims of politics and public service? Yeah, sure. I mean... Every victory shapes you, and every defeat shapes you. And if you learn from each, that's the recipe for a full life. And uh, it's easy to say you learn from victory. What do you learn? What do you learn? Discipline's important. You, you like to win. What do you learn from defeat? You learn, well, what did you do wrong? What can you do better? How, well, what, what, look deep within yourself, find something that you had missed before, cultivate that, develop that, and then move out into the world again. 
And you become a different person in defeat if you're sensitive to all aspects of it. In victory, you don't become a different person. You're the same person. You're the victor. You're the champion. And there's a whole role you play, not as an individual, but as in the culture. But when you're defeated, then you really have to go into your internal reserve. And you got to emerge from a defeat as a slightly different person, wiser and probably better able to relate to other people because all of us fail. Uh, you referred to uh, going up to Harlem to play basketball to improve your game, but you also went up to Harlem uh, as a volunteer, if I remember correctly, from uh, reading about you and also... Yeah, yeah. during one off-season, I uh, taught at a street academy at 116th in uh, Lenox. So is there a sense, as you're creating your basketball career, that uh, there's a big world out there as a big world to be learned about. And I'm learning about that, A, by traveling to all these different cities around the country, but also New York City, the place that you now call home and play where you play basketball, is many different cities itself. Absolutely. I mean, that would be one of the great things about being on the road with my team. You learn about people who are different than you. And you get into a city, you learn about the difference among cities. And for me, in the off-season, I'd travel, too. I'd go around the world one year, for example. And i you know, fly into a place. I had a list of people I wanted to talk to, some of them in government, some of them writers. I'd call them. 80% of them would blow me off. 20% would say, sure. And then I had some interesting conversations. The result was you grew. And the key thing is always grow. Curiosity is the key to that. And having the curiosity to persevere sometimes when you get three or four bad interviews or three or four no's. The fifth one turns out to be the gym. Well, just keep going. Just keep going. I mean, uh, who was it said half of winning is showing up? Yeah. The early years growing up in Missouri and also at Princeton. Do they and the lessons learned during those years for you, either at home or out on the road, do they inform the work that you did after that? And do they continue to inform the work that you do now in some sense? The answer is uh, sure. I mean, we're all shaped early in life by our parental influences, our familial influences, our community influences and your own personal journey. And when you learn from all those things, you pretty have a pretty deep imprint by the time you're 14. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, back in the late 90s called Values of the Game, which I wrote about 10 values that I learned playing basketball. But you can learn playing the piano or, or doing a computer. Things like uh, discipline and selflessness, imagination, um, those are things that uh, stay with you forever. And they are what keep you uh, vital and what uh, feed your curiosity. And to me, that's the key thing. I don't understand people who stop wanting to learn. It's the end of life. I think I'm going to be trying to learn on my deathbed. I will be. 
I'll be wondering what it's going to be like when I'm dead. <laughs> you constantly be thinking about these things. Yeah. You also wrote a book, which I loved, called Time Present, Time Past. And, uh, and this notion of this podcast is before the cheering started. But when it comes to cheering, you heard cheering as part of a team, again, as beloved as any in New York City, that was as loud as it gets for a sports arena. And uh, members of that team have told me that certainly when they're in New York, they get reminded about that team by people all the time. Was there a point after your career and, and as you're cre creating your career of public service where you s either said to yourself intentionally or it kind of dawned on you, I need to stop thinking about those championship seasons or not dwelling on them as much as I have? Well, when I was a senator, when I was elected, I never talked about basketball with fellow senators. I wanted to be accepted and prove myself by the standards of the Senate, right? But uh, as time passes, you find that a big part of who you are was shaped during those years and that you have a capacity because of the role you played with your teammates at a time where we succeeded and won championships uh, to bless. And, you know, when, maybe when I was a player, I felt sometimes when the public would come at you with the autographs or this, that, that I was, I was defensive a little bit about it. But the older I got, I realized that this was actually pretty nice that this kid was coming with his father who, as a boy, went to the Nick games. I can say, yeah, I remember that. Great, here, let me sign this or let me do this. It's a way of living your life so you give back to people. And, you know, players are like entertainers. I mean, you know, without the audience, there wouldn't be. What would we be, you know? Even the poets of, and storytellers of ancient Ireland had to have an audience. They didn't just talk to themselves. <laughs> they talked to other people. They connected with other people. And so finding a different level to connect with other people uh, from a point of generosity and blessing to me was one of the great joys of the post-basketball uh, career. And speaking of connecting to people and going far beyond simply giving an autograph, the notion that you were a symbol, and I'm not going to put this in the, in the uh, oh, to somebody else, to me, to me, to my generation, to my friends, in terms of want to be a good ball player, want to be a good student. And those two go together and have to go together at a time in life when you're 12, 13, 14, when maybe in school, Oh, they're the good students, and then they're the good athletes, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, is there a notion, first of all, was it that an easy synthesis for you growing up? And second of all, the notion that you became a symbol of that, and there are many others as well. Is that something that uh, dawns upon you as you're playing? Or again, is that something that only comes to you upon reflection years later? Well, you are who you are. I mean, and I was both somebody who believed that academics was important and somebody that believed sports was important. And one of the great things about college was these two things went together. And mm -hmm. the pros, it's your job to play. Then you have to find ways to keep that intellectual aspect of your life alive. 
which I did. I remember talking with uh, Wizard White once about when I was trying to decide, do I play professional basketball? He was a Supreme Court justice who played pro football. And um, I said, well, I think I should play. So it depends on what you do in your off season. If you really engage and do something that allows you to grow outside of the game, well, then it's worth doing because you're playing is your passion. But then you also have another passion, which is understanding the world. And so spend your off season trying to understand the world. And that's what I did. And it was a full experience. Bill Bradley. He has performed his one-man show for audiences in New York and across the country. And a documentary is in the works based on the one-man show. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. This episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.